live and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. Lee Phillips is a composer, orchestrator and producer with experience in creating unique compositions and orchestrations for media, concert performances and CD recordings. In May 2023, for Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast, I had the pleasure of talking to Lee Phillips via clean feed from his home in Prague in the Czech Republic. In part one of our two-part interview, we talked about his musical beginnings, how he started getting into orchestration work and reconstruction of scores, and how he began his collaboration with James Fitzpatrick and Tadlow Records. In part two, we talk about his work on Goldsmith review recordings, including Black Patch and General Electric Theatre, his views on film music today, and his concerns about the use of AI on future film scores. And, as in part one of the show, you'll be hearing music of which Lee Phillips has orchestrated and reconstructed, specially chosen by Lee for these shows, to showcase his immense talent. But we continue to the interview about his work on concert arrangements and particularly his work on the yearly Fumicite series of concerts. How did that come about? Um, that would have been through James again because I've been doing work with Diego and Pedro for Donkeys. I mean, going back to 2010 when I was prepping suites for either Ubeda or one of the other festivals or Fumicite. Because James, or because James used to used to be one of the sponsors of the of the festival, so he'd have a hand in crafting their concert programs. And then whenever something needed arranging, James would would usually get in touch with me or one of his other arrangers and, and ask for material to be produced for Fimusite. Now that James doesn't do so much, Fimusite kind of just approached me directly and instead of going through Tadlow. So that's a relationship which which continues to actually this day because I'm right in the middle of doing a program for them at the moment. Well, the standout recently was a piece I played on my show, which was the suite from Rocky Four. Ah, that was such a nice experience. And the first time working with Vince DiCola, which I, I, I was a little bit nervous about because, again, it, it's sort of like working with well, your, your idols because I was really aware of Vince's film work, particularly on Rocky and Transformers. So when Pedro mentioned, ah, yeah, can you collaborate with, with Vince of this three-movement symphonic suite from Rocky? I was like, yeah, sure, secretly bricking it. Uh, he was so lovely. Uh, it was great because he was so well prepared as well because he basically programmed all the electronics and the band stuff and sent me a lovely chart which had all the band music sort of reduced into a piano sketch. He just had a couple of thoughts that he jotted down there. Oh yeah, maybe winds could do this. Maybe some percussion could be here. Maybe this could be here. But it, it was essentially, I'll oh, just do what you feel. Just, just make it big and impressive 
And I think that Vince's music has got so much energy into it, you can't help but get just caught up in it and carried away with it. And certainly when I found working on the Rocky Suite quite exhausting because you were sort of like getting into the groove when you're doing the orchestral arrangement. This is like, no, harder, more intense. This is, is going to have more energy. And you, this it's kind of pouring out of you. You, know, you. you just really get in the zone with it. And that was lovely. And, you know, it was it was being performed by the Femicity Youth Orchestra. And it, it ain't easy. And they did such a, such a lovely job on it.
Now you've done a lot of work on reconstructing and re-recording music from an anthology series that feature Jerry Goldsmith. We'll talk about General Electric Theatre, your recent project later, but first of all, talk to us about Thriller, how the work on that came about. Ah, yeah, yeah. Thriller, that's that's great. Such good music. Again, this this was really a a big collaboration with James because I... I first stumbled across Thriller by accident. It's, it's sort of like another story. This is another digression. I can't even remember what I was looking at. I was looking for some Goldsmith music, I think, probably on YouTube or something like that. And this end credits for the Grim Reaper came up. And I thought, well, what's this? I, I've I's like never even heard of this series. I've certainly never heard of Goldsmith doing something like this. And I put this music on, which I've recently discovered wasn't the end titles it was just sort of an, an an edit down of one of the cues in the actual episode but this piece just blew me away I thought, my God, this is like classic Goldsmith, but with like a really reduced ensemble. I've got to hear more of this music from this series. So I hunted down the DVD set on eBay and ordered it. Went through all the the episodes that Jerry had scored. And I, I absolutely loved every one of them. I thought they were incredible. And from that point onwards... It was sort of like a slowly gestating plan that at some point I have to record these. So not long before we did Thriller Volume 1, I kind of like came up with a list of pieces that I wanted to record on an album and the instrumentation list to go alongside it. And I just sent the instrumentation list to James and said, can you give me a quote on this because I'm going to run the Kickstarter to record this because it's super stuff. And obviously I'd want to record it in Prague. So he sent me back a quote on how much it was going to cost. And he said, I tell you what, he said, I'll meet you halfway. So it'll cost you half as much. I was like, oh, wow, that's incredible. That's really generous. Okay, next month, this was like in July of that particular year. I said, next month, I'm going to run a Kickstarter and it'll be for this much. And hopefully we'll get the money and we can record it in Prague. And then on my birthday, I remember this because I was out for my birthday and I had an email from him. And it was like, happy birthday. Now, what about this thriller thing? I said, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. I'm going to be putting the Kickstarter together next week. 
<laughs> he just rolled back and said, ah, no, I'll tell you what, forget the Kickstarter. Let's just do it anyway. I was like, what? He said, yes, let's just record it. I was like, well, I'm not going to charge for the orchestration. This has always been sort of like a, this is a passion project. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll obviously do all, all the scoring for free. And I got the suites together for album one and we recorded it. And I think it was probably a little bit of a sleeper hit for Tadlow. I'm not sure if it did sell out, but I'm fairly sure that, that they sold out of the, the initial print run. I'm fairly sure because it wasn't long after that, that James emailed and said, well, th th this was unexpected. So do you want to do a thriller volume two? And then with that, we kind of had a little bit more of a back and forth in terms of the pieces to include on the second volume, because the first volume, I mean, apart from Mr. George, which is a really sweet and beautiful score, a lot of it is what, you know, the, the people call like uh, long haired music or the, the, the sort of slightly more avant-garde things, but because I love Goldsmith's, uh, <laughs> I love Goldsmith's weird stuff. So that was jam-packed on the first album because James was helping choose the program for number two. There was a bit more sort of the more conventional melodic stuff on on the second volume. And of course, things kind of ground to a halt before we managed to do volume three. Although that's something which isn't immediately on my radar, but it, it often pops into my mind. So I think I, I, I would like to do it at some point. And even if it's just to appease the people who were upset that there was no Morton Stevens included on the Goldsmith albums, because they're always intended to be Goldsmith albums, not Morton Stevens albums. But the problem is, with as far as original Goldsmith material is concerned, there's not enough on volume three to actually fill the CD. So... I'd already sort of made tentative plans uh, and, and programmed some Morton Stevens stuff on there. I think it was like Pigeons from Hell, The Storm. There were going to be three Morton Stevens scores on particular album. Now, the other anthology series you're working on with recordings for are the General Electric Theatre series of Goldsmith Schools. Did that come about in a similar way as Rilla? 
Um, no, with, with GE Theatre, I think this mainly came about because of conversations with the Goldsmith Odyssey guys. They're like real big fans of the music for this show. It's really interesting because there are some episodes of this people haven't heard for like 60 years because, I mean, the tapes are actually lost. Not just the music tapes, I and mean, we're talking about the actual episodes. They've just disappeared or been misfiled or, I don't know, some tragic accident. But there's been some serendipity with this because it seems to be that the episodes that we have on audio only, we don't have manuscript for. But the episodes that we don't have audio or video access, we've got the manuscripts. So there's just been sort of like this this little 50-50 game with each of these episodes. Some I have to do via takedown from the episode because there's no access to music charts. And some, which we've got no access to any audio or any video whatsoever, but we do have Goldsmith's original scores. I think this was the Goldsmith Odyssey guys who, who sort of probably quietly railroaded me into doing this because they knew I was looking to do a Kickstarter project and because I'm new to Kickstarter and I'm new to doing my own stuff I've worked with Tadlow for years sure but but only as an orchestrator and then in later years helping James actually produce the sessions but you know I've never actually been responsible for kind of the ins and outs of managing a release of any music before so although I initially would have had some like grand ambitions to do something like Lionheart I've kind of I kind of like chickened out a little bit and thought, no, you know, I need to start with something a little more manageable and a little smaller. Because also I'm really conscious that this is quite a difficult time for people financially anyway. To do something as big as Lionheart, which I, I'd love to do because I, I honestly think that score needs a re-record. I mean, we can keep remastering it until the cows come home. But the thing is, is, is the performance just isn't up the scratch on it. it. It deserves a redo. The fact that, that Goldsmith went from Budapest back to LA and started overlaying synthesizers over the trumpets and the brass kind of shows you that he wasn't really happy with the performance. Because I, I, I don't think Lionheart was intended to be so synth-heavy originally. I could be wrong because I've never seen the original manuscripts. But my suspicion is it was mainly going to be acoustic with these lovely little synth colorings in there but it ended up having quite a lot of synth brass presence but sim I, I think simply because of the performance i could be wrong on that but over the years i've been increasingly more convinced that, th that this was the case but anyway although i'd love to do lionheart that would be a big financial commitment to anybody who was going to sponsor it so i thought yeah the, the easiest thing i can do is just record these scores which are like 10 minutes and use about 12 or 14 players because that's relatively cheap and then once we've recorded enough of them and released them individually, we'll have enough for an album. Then it's it's relatively easy to do because you've got all the all the recordings done ready.
we'll talk about now another of your re-recordings which I think came out very well. You've worked on the first ever Jerry Goldsmith score, Black Patch. How did that come about? Uh, yeah, yeah, the the, the 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 Royal Scottish. Yeah, what a brilliant, brilliant orchestra and such a lovely room to record in as well, which uh, I mean, Simon Rhodes was behind the desk and I'm fairly sure that he was sort of like an advisor to the orchestra when they were building the, the studio slash rehearsal slash concert space. That simply came about because I'd done quite a lot of Goldsmith reconstructions in, in the past and Roger and Doug reached out and said, would you be interested in doing Black Patch? Black Patch was fairly straightforward because they actually had access to the manuscript. So, you know, we were working from Goldsmith's original chart. So it was a case of just inputting those into the software and making sure that everything was neat and tidy and, and editing things. So how can I say? His score contains details to a certain point, but because he's the composer and, you know, he's there at the sessions and he, he might even be conducting or not conducting, but he's there, uh, it's quite easy for him not to be overly detailed and change something on the stage and say, okay, I want this much, much louder than it says on, on, on the chart. Play it two dynamics louder or play this softer or play this short or play this long. It was kind of just matching up or it was including these sort of little performance quirks in the written scores, which didn't feature on the original charts. So it it, it was kind of like editing the digital versions to make sure they match the performance rather than matching the original handwritten music as it were. It's a wonderful work, a really great recording of the score. And you can clearly hear the familiar Jay Goldsmith throats from his very first score. You've got a, almost like a fully formed Goldsmith present for his first film score. Okay, you can hear that it's 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 got a slightly different vibe to the later stuff because it was a composer who went through various stages of development, the same as any, you know, concert composer. He changed his approach, his style to to match trends of the time. But in terms of the, the technique and as you say, sort of certain fingerprints and certain tropes, uh, yeah, you can spot them a mile off in Black Patch. And and it's kind of curious because I, I know that 
you know, General Electric Theatre is perhaps a little later than that. Although, you know, the, the earliest episode I think that we've covered is like 1958 or 1959. So like same year as Black Patch, but the others have been 1960, 1961. It's amazing sort of like how many little gestures and similarities one can trace in the General Electric Theatre, you know, which is for like these tiny groups of I- instrumentalists in his later scores and some really, really big scores. It's quite remarkable how mature his style was at such an early stage. But then, of course, they wanted to double that with a man and all they had access to this time was a VHS copy of the score, which was exponentially worse than Salamander. Because you know it was really really dodgy sound quality, but fortunately the the score was mixed quite high because there wasn't a great deal of music in it. You know it's, it's a very short score, and the moments that they did use music, there weren't a lot of sound effects and stuff like that surrounding it. So unfortunately, the man had to be done as as a takedown. And then about three weeks after they released the album, <laughs> the, the manuscripts were unearthed. <laughs> so. That was unfortunate, but I'm fairly convinced that it still sounds pretty accurate. Now, over the years, you had this growing relationship with the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. How do you describe your relationship with them? Uh, It's kind of like it's an extended family, a lot of the, and, you know, I can understand why James had such an affection for them. You know, you you work with the same people for so long that, you, you know, you get to know them. It's useful to have this sort of sort of close relationship with them. A client, for instance, will send music over and say, we're going to record this. And you can almost preempt the bits which might take a little bit more time than others because you know who's there. Or you, you, you can almost like preempt what the orchestra is going to do or how they're going to perform. So knowing the players, knowing the way the orchestra operates is kind of like a, a really useful place to be, particularly when you're recording music for television or film because timing is so tight. 
I do have to say, though, you know, because of the rules or lack of union rules here in terms of the amount of music that one can record in any given session, I do think and it's, it, it's the same with a lot of European orchestras that people take advantage of the fact that we're not unionized. So, you know, there's no cutoff point with regards to the amount of music we can record in a session. And I, I do think people take advantage of that and the orchestra tends to be a little bit overworked. The really nice sessions are the, one with, are the ones where somebody comes with a manageable amount of stuff and we've got time to breathe, we've got time to work on it, we've got time to finesse the performance instead of this situation where we're kind of like chasing the clock and then it becomes a bit unpleasant. I, I always describe it as it being like a sausage factory. It's just like you got two takes, move on, two takes, move on, two takes, move on, two takes, move on. That's not enjoyable at all. To some extent, I, I wish that they were unionized because it, it would stop composers and, uh, and clients doing that because I, I, I really don't like it. You also sort of get the situation there where sometimes a client will complain, oh, I, yeah, but, you know, the, the performance isn't right. It says, yeah, that's because we've got no bloody time to get it right. Because you wanted to record some, sort of like, 35 minutes worth of stuff at a single session, which is absolutely ludicrous. You, you, you can't do that. If you try to do that back in the UK or in the United States, they tell you to go and whistle. It was kind of like a really interesting situation with the Royal Scottish because when we were there, the one thing that I did see was, or well, the one thing is that, that happened was a union rep came up to us and said, can we see your cue sheet for today? We want to know exactly how much music you're recording. I was like, wow, yes, this is how it should be. <laughs> you know, so we should say, no, 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 no. It's uh, and the the other thing, of course, is is technology. Sorry, this is this is turning into a bit of a rant, but I guess it's it 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 might be it might be vaguely interesting. But the other thing, of course, is the use of technology and the 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 use of technology which enables us to record multiple layers of things. And of course, the classic thing is somebody has written down on a spreadsheet that we we've, we've got a list of stuff that we're recording for that particular day, and somebody says this piece is two minutes long. They've meticulously written by that next to that how long it's going to take to record two minutes of music. I go, okay, this makes perfect sense. But what they neglect or they don't take into consideration is the fact that they've got a second or even third layer of strings on there. I say, well, this piece is no longer two minutes. It's four minutes or it's six minutes. So the time that you've allotted to record your two-minute piece here, you can actually either need to double it or you need to treble it. Certain people wonder why we, we end up rushing through things. And it's because of inadequate thought, just a rush to record as much music as possible. I love working with the studio and I love working with this orchestra, but I dislike it when it becomes a sausage factory. That's not cool because we just want to record nice stuff and have a good time doing it. And I think that's all anybody wants. But when things start to get fraught and you've got to go bum, 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 you know, faster, 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 faster. That's no way to make music. Anyway, rant over. <laughs> and you won't get the best performance from the orchestra. So it's kind of productive in a way as well. Yeah, this, yeah, this is absolutely true.
got involved more in orchestrating original film and TV projects. One that stands out to me is your work on Moon Knight, that fantastic Marvel score composed brilliantly by Hezam Nazi. Tell us about how you got involved in that project. Oh, that, that, that was a lovely experience. And, and working with Hesham is a real joy because he puts so much trust in his arrangers, just so much faith in you. And that's quite a rarity. I know that he was very, very much under the gun with this in, in terms of scheduling. We were working on it, uh, I think, for about three or four months, recording like four times a week because everything was recorded in stems. So it was a really, really busy time. But he was under a lot of pressure, which meant that how I got involved with it was through my colleague Adam Clemens. Now, originally, Hesham used to book orchestral sessions through James. And James put my colleague Adam Clemens in touch with Hesham to orchestrate one of his scores years ago. And from that point, Adam always worked with Hesham as his orchestrator. Now, Adam is one of the conductors here in Smetchki and he knows that, that, that I'm an orchestrator. So Adam was when Hesham got the job to do Moon Knight, or was hired to do Moon Knight, Adam automatically was going to be his principal orchestrator. But Adam knew that the schedule was going to be tight, so he asked if I'd be willing to sort of like share the load. And of course I said yes, because it was a chance to work with a colleague who I, I like very much, because I work quite a lot with Adam. And it was a chance to work on a Marvel limited series, so I said, I'm not going to turn it down. And it was uh, difficult, because we were up against very, very tight deadlines. I mean, sometimes we were receiving music at midnight on a Tuesday, and we'd be recording it at 11 o'clock on Wednesday morning. It was really a case of sometimes like pulling all nighters, as it were. But by the by, we, we, we sort of expected that, but it was lovely to work with Adam and with Nick Dodd and, and Hesham was so accommodating and trusting. And of course, we got to work with the orchestra and choir in Synchron for several months and it was just a, a wonderful experience.
now, what do you find the difference, if any, in reconstructing an old school to orchestrating new material? And which do you prefer to do? I still prefer doing reconstructions. I think, on balance, the older film scores utilise the orchestra in a much more considered fashion. Whereas today, again, this is speaking very, very generally, but the orchestra seems to spend a lot of time sharing the limelight with ambient effects. And, and then sometimes the orchestra itself is, is quite often used to enhance electronic ambience and electronic sounds rather than vice versa. It's kind of like the, the electronic palettes seem to be gaining progressively more dominant in music creation, or at least a lot of the stuff that seems to come through the studio. And, and the orchestra, quite often just strings, tends to get sort of like placed somewhere on top of it or somewhere in the background just to add a little bit of life. Of course, that's a huge and sweeping generalization because obviously you just look at Moon Knight and that's not the case at all. The orchestra is front and center, but it's interlaced with these beautiful traditional instruments which are woven into the orchestral framework and some synth work ethnic vocal recording. I don't know, with Moon Knight, there's a real synergy of elements with a lot of stuff that we record and some of the stuff that I've been asked to orchestrate over the past few years. The orchestral element just seems to be an add-on to add a little bit of life to things. Whereas with the reconstructions, the orchestra is the thing. The colour, the emotion, everything comes from the orchestral writing. And also, of course, there's the tendency these days to stray away from more traditional melodic elements in favour of shorter motifs or little sound bites. There still seems to be a little bit of fear of long-form melody in modern productions. Obviously, there are exceptions where one looks at things like Game of Thrones, certainly, which is littered with themes, or Rings of Power, which is just a, a, an extraordinary work, which is littered with themes. And of course, the, the most recent goes for Star Trek Picard, which are a real kind of love letter to traditional Trek scores. I, I think those are kind of like all exceptions to the rule. I don't know. There seems to be a lot of sameness or interchangeability with more modern scores. Again, this, I, I'm not saying that there isn't good stuff out there because that would be total rubbish because we record some beautiful stuff in Smetchki. There's one which always springs to mind and is a, it's a composer who wrote a first film score, uh, Andrea Eklund, um, who wrote a beautiful score for a Moomin's animation. And we spent two days recording this music that she'd written and it was some of the nicest stuff which had gone through that desk in ages. I still wish somebody would release it on CD because it's amazing. It's a beautiful score and it's just jam-packed full of like atmosphere and melody. There's a lot of heart in it. There's a lot of soul in that score and it's, it's absolutely beautiful and it's, it's such a shame that I haven't seen that appear in it on Spotify or it's not available. But just to get back to your question, if somebody would give me the choice between working on new stuff and working on old stuff, it's always got to be the old stuff. That, that's really where my, my, my passion is. How do you see the future of film and TV music? I don't know. I mean, if you believe everything that you read on Facebook or in the paper, in, in 10 years' time, we're all going to be replaced by robots. So my opinion counts for naught.
because I'm going to be replaced by AI and so is every other composer, which I totally don't think is going to happen. But no, I, I honestly see things... Yeah. Things have phases. What's the trend today is not going to be trendy tomorrow. So I honestly don't know. I think that one of the big differences, certainly in terms of the way that music is created and music is written... I think technology has had a big effect on this. And uh, this isn't the first time I've, I've, I've said this because I remember talking to the Goldsmith Odyssey guys about this when they asked a similar question. One of the big differences, I think, between the older stuff and uh, some of the things, some, I, I've got to put a big emphasis on that, that some of the material being written today is the fact that <laughs> if you can drive a DAW, if you can drive Cubase and you can drive sequences and you can drive logic and you can drive software, anybody can be a composer if they choose. Because one of the most interesting things I think that James Horner said in an interview was that technology is amazing because it allows us freedom when it comes to creating music. It, it gives us more options. It's a real assistant. But the flip side of this is that it's a real enabler in the sense that you don't really have had to have spent years in music conservatoire or learned all the skills to be a composer in order to compose because the software is enabling you to do it and produce sort of fairly decent results. I'm not saying that that's a case of it being right or wrong, but there's a fundamental difference that 30 years ago or 40 years ago, if you wanted to write the score, you had to be able to put pen to paper and work out how harmony sounded, how a melody was going to develop, how the orchestra was going to function. And you you had to do that all in your head. Today, you can have like a really good sort of like a really amazing computer setup of all the right samples with auto rhythms and auto arranging. You know, because there was one problem, I, I forget what it was called, action strings where you could literally just play a three-note chord and this stuff would just write these, would just produce these incredible ostinati patterns played by a full, like, string ensemble. That's not really the composition. You're just choosing to do a chord and then the computer is sort of doing the rest. That, I think, is like the best example of Horner's theory. Of it, It's the computer which is enabling you to do that. You haven't sat down and thought, okay, if I have the violins doing this, that's going to be cool. If I have the second violins interacting with the first violins in this way, that's going to propel the rhythm forward. If I have this, the violas doing this, that's going to come up with a good sort of like counter theme or counterbalance for the first violins. If I have cellis and basses doing this, this is going to give us a good grounding. And again, an interest in rhythmic figuration. None of that thought process is as even, you, you've not had to go through that. You literally just thought, ah, yeah, C minor, that's a nice chord. And the computer has done the rest. And this is what I think he meant. There's no skill in, other than learning the software or how to use the software, there's been no acquired skill to reach that point. Not like somebody who would have sat down and written this stuff sort of individually. This would be sort of like a really shit analogy, but, but it's almost like a novelist using some piece of computer software, it says, okay, if I give you sort of like this basic outline of something, I write the sentence, you can change this into a paragraph. The skill of crafting something from nothing, I think for some people has been lost. But then again, it's, it's a totally different skill to learn to use the software. I couldn't do it. So is it right? Is it wrong? Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. But my own feelings on it is... We just have to be careful that we don't lose ourselves 
we've still got some agency in in the creative process. I think that's the biggest fear of people with AI is that eventually, you know, somebody will press a button. It's like, wait, we got a music score. I don't think that will happen, but I can see that the developments in software, especially over the last 10 or so years, would point people or get people to think that perhaps things are heading in that direction. I mean, I don't think it will. I don't think we're going to be replaced by machines. This this is not the Terminator. That's not going to happen. But the process of music creation has changed so radically over the last 20 years that it's very difficult to make comparisons between what was going on, you know, when Goldsmith was starting out compared to when some people are starting out now. This makes me sound like I'm painting all contemporary or modern current composers in a very, very bad light. And I'm not. I think there are some amazing composers, some really erudite, skilled and sensitive musical dramatists writing for screen these days. But also, there's a lot of duffers there as well. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all I'm saying. And you may lose the individuality of the music. Gosef had a unique sound. Horn had a unique sound. John Barry had a unique sound. You would lose the composer's imprint of their music. It would just be a computer interpretation of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, right. And I, I think you're sort of like hitting on an interesting point there because I think that's potentially one of the issues that we've got today is is the sameness, is the fact that lots of people are kind of like losing their identity. I know that the, the score for All Quiet on the Western Front really raised my brows this year. It's been the source of (laughs) quite heated debate on social media and on forums and stuff. Now, I've kind of like got no opinion on it either way because I've not seen the film, so I can't pass comment. But the one thing I I, I will say about it is, you know, the guy has done something so radical, whether it fits the drama or not, you sure as hell are not going to forget it. Whether or not people feel it's worked to the detriment or to the benefit of the film, I'm, I'm kind of taking that out of the equation at the moment because I, I'm not talking about its worthiness of film music, but I'm just talking about the independence of voice. I think that there was a similar kind of hoo-ha which, which erupted over Mika Levy and some of her film work. Love it or hate it, one can't take away from them the fact that nobody else sounds like it. Again, I'm not saying that whether it, they're doing a good or a bad job. That's not my place because that, that, that's not what I'm discussing it. But it's, it's getting on to that point of, of individuality, of a distinctive voice, a thing which I think we're, we're lacking that these days. I don't know. You could probably rack up about four contemporary television scores and play them next to one another and you, you wouldn't be able to tell one from the other. I think that would have been quite rare back in the day. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of saying whether the stuff that Mika Levy did was good or bad or, or whether this the score for Western Front is, is, is good or bad. I'm, I'm kind of talking about the individual voice, the sense of, you know, they, the, the composer's personality really coming through in what they've written. So, you know, love it or hate it, the fact is that somebody's doing something quite radical and quite different. People who do that are always going to be the subject of conversation, let's say.
you started as a composer before you became a full-time orchestrator. Would you, in the future, like to compose your own material again, or has that ship sailed in your career? And I mean, you, you you never lose the chops. The fact that I did train as a composer helped me immeasurably as an orchestrator because it helps me solve problems and and it helps me solve problems in the middle of recording sessions. You know, you can scan through a score and just say to your client, ah, is this note supposed to be this? Or is this supposed to be this? Or, ah, right, if you put this up an octave, maybe this will give you a better effect. Or if you change this dynamic, I mean, all the knowledge that there was acquired as a student and, and beyond that, every bit of it is going to contribute to make me more efficient, I think. And I still look at things in scores and go, oh, that's cool. I need to remember that for, for something else. But in terms of aspirations to be a composer, if somebody asked me to write something, I would have no problem writing it. But with the way the frantic nature of film production these days, I, I don't think I'd want the, the hassle. I'll, I'd rather let the composers take the hassle and the heat from the studio and I'll just do the orchestration afterwards. That's totally fine. Now, what sort of things are you working on at present, that you're allowed to tell us? So today, well, two days ago, I, I did a little bit of orchestration for Grant Kirkhop for Mario Rabbids, and, and we recorded that here in Prague today. So that's something which will be coming up, I don't know when. At present, I'm working on concert program for Fimusite for uh, next month. Ah, right. No, sorry. This is for July. There is something I have to work on after that, which I I, I, I don't think I can talk about. For for this next two weeks, I'm working on the program for Fimicite, which is... They, they've got this lovely concept for a program for Symphonia Krakowia from Poland, uh, are giving us like five instrumentalists who will combine with Juno Reactor to do a small ensemble and electronic interpretations of the music of Penderecki for the first half of the concert. And the second half uh, is the same ensemble, but dedicated to the music of Kubrick and Lynch movies, but for the same ensemble. So I'm working on that part of the program for the Missite. That's, that's going to be finished tomorrow. Because then on Sunday I've got to start on doing some or preparing some pieces for the uh, Symphonica Tenerife uh, concert, which is the the sort of big concert at the end. So that will be reunited with with Joe Harnell to do an arrangement of the Incredible Hulk, because Pedro's a big fan of those main credits with the little piano riff and stuff. That's going to be in there, which I, I was so excited about because that that just such a that would be the orchestration work though for you, wouldn't it? It's just the piano. <laughs> just the, the, the yeah, absolutely. The the, the first four bars will be simple, <laughs> but. Uh, um, so there's this piece from the Incredible Hulk. There's music from Thor um, to prepare for them. Uh, a suite of music for X-Men, which is X-Men from the animated series going through to the movies. And uh, music from Dick Tracy. But I think the Sondheim stuff and music from The Crow. So there are there are sort of like a handful of concert suites to to put together for them over the next two weeks. That sounds excellent. So look look forward, hopefully, that will be released in some sort of way, and I'll look forward to listen to it. It sounds, sounds fascinating. 
Uh, I hope so. It's, it's always really, really interesting programs uh, that, that Diego and Pedro come up with. So, yeah, it's just really exciting to do it. Now, finally, your career, as I know, has progressed amazingly the, over the last decade. How do you see your career developing in the next 10 years? Um, I, 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 I think I'm kind of like happy doing what I'm doing. In terms of development, I don't think I've got any sort of like major aspirations because I'm very content doing orchestrations and and producing sessions here. I, I think I'd like to do a little more conducting as and when, um, because I used to do qu- quite a lot of conducting in, in the early 2000s. I think I'd like to to do that again. I, I do get the opportunity to be here because whenever I do an orchestration and it's being recorded here, more often than not, I'll, I'll conduct my own stuff as it were, because that, that that's kind of like a bit of a no brainer. I think I'd perhaps like to look into doing maybe sort of like a bigger Kickstarter and releasing something a little bit more major than the small scores that I'm working on at the moment. I think I'd possibly like to explore the possibility of doing something a little larger in the future. But that's that's kind of just like as and when. But uh, no, that, that, that's it, I think. I'm, I'm very sort of like content doing doing what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, whatever it is, I very much look forward to hearing it. Lee Phillips, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you once again. Thank you very much for joining us today on Talking Soundtracks. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's been great. It's been good to catch up with you again. So thanks for thanks for having me. I do hope you've enjoyed both parts of my interview with composer, orchestrator and producer Lee Phillips. I must mention here that the Talking Soundtracks theme was composed by David Cosina. I leave you with music from one of the memorable Wii recordings which came out of Tadlow Records that Lee Phillips lent his excellent reconstructing skills. It's the overture from Miklos Rosch's classic score for King of Kings performed by the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra and Chorus conducted by Nick Rain. My sincere thanks again to Lee Phillips for joining us today on Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. And until we meet again, for me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to Tee Public to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.